You have the Oregon podcast. This is Johnny, and I'm live on the scene. And I'm at the corner of West First Avenue and Maple Street. Junction City is a darling little town. It is, um, I guess, kind of a bedroom community for Eugene, but it has its own vibe too. I love Junction City very much. It's probably one of my favorite towns in Western Oregon. So I'm here because in 1970, on January 21st, 1970 to be specific, Terry and Julie Dade were a young couple, married, had an infant son, and they were both murdered. And I'm looking at these apartment buildings and I'm trying to figure out which one they lived in. I don't even know if that building is still standing. There's one building that I think could be, could have been built in like the late 60s. Back to Julie and Terry. They were just young, starting off their life, just had became parents. And we'll dive into it and give as much information as possible. Sadly, Terry and Julie both were murdered, but the baby was left in his crib completely unscathed. There's a lot of crazy details surrounding this case, and I'll definitely... We, rather, will definitely share as much as possible. Thank you for listening to Oregon Podcast. Stay tuned for more about Julie and Terry Dade. Before we get into the details of this double homicide, I'd like to share a little more about how I found out about this case. While researching for a missing persons case from Eugene in 2005, the headline for Julie and Terry Dade's case caught my eye. Due to the sensational headlines, I had to look, and then I had to research, and then I knew. This had to be our next episode. This case spoke right to me because Junction City is a community close to my heart and so very like the community I grew up in. In coming up with a name for this episode, I wanted to express how internally chaotic and scary this case was for us to research. And one song came to my mind, Helter Skelter by The Beatles. We know the lyrics. When I get to the bottom, I go back to the top of the slide, where I stop and I turn around and I go for a ride till I get to the bottom and I see you again. At first blush, it's just a song about time going on in infinity, reincarnation, but to me it feels a little more pressured than that, almost like a compulsion. I have to see you again. Helter Skelter. We all know that Helter Skelter was also written in blood at one of the scenes of the Manson family's murder. This crime, to me, has a Manson family feeling. I don't really think that the Manson family was involved in this double homicide in 1970 in Junction City, Oregon, but it has the same feeling. Please take care while listening. This episode outlines a very grisly murder of two people, two young parents in the prime of their lives. This material is potentially triggering. It's not suitable for children. Why don't you give a little bit more background about Julie Ann Dade and Terry Lynn Dade? Okay. Julie and Terry Dade were married. Terry was 19. Julie was 20. Terry was actually from Junction City, born and raised, went to high school in Junction City, whereas Julie's family moved from Bonners Ferry, Idaho, to the Eugene area approximately eight years before this crime occurred. Julie was born in August of 1949, and she, as stated before, moved from Bonners Ferry, Idaho with her family. She ended up going to North Eugene High School and graduated in 1967. 
Terry was born in August 1950 in Junction City. He went to Junction City High School and graduated in 1968. He worked at the American Can Company Plywood Mill, which is in Junction City. Julie and Terry were married at the First Christian Church in Junction City in 1968 with the ceremony performed by Reverend Gilbert Knox. Julie and Terry had one child, Mark, who was one year old. Reverend Gilbert Knox was also the presiding minister who laid them to rest. I'm right out front of First Christian Church. It's a modest brown building, probably built in the late 60s, perhaps early to mid 60s, I'm not sure. Looks like a nice little church. The presiding pastor of the church in 1970 was Gil Knox. Gilbert Knox was also my professor when I attended Northwest Christian College in 1999. Gil, as he was known, was my Old Testament professor. And I loved Gil Knox. Um, He was a stickler. He was definitely not like the most fun guy (laughs) in the room. He was very serious, but I loved that professor. He was so knowledgeable. He had gone to the Holy Lands many, many times. He was just a really good man, just solid character. Gil Knox passed away just a few years ago at the age of 88. So he lived a good long life. I just remember him fondly. We talked a lot. I would talk to him after class and he was just so knowledgeable, not just about first century Christianity, but also about Judaism. And he was just a scholar. And when I think of the term still waters run deep, I think of Gil Knox. To think that he was the officiant for Julie and Terry's wedding, and then he also was the officiant for their funeral just a couple short years later. I'm a little emotional thinking about what that must have been like for Gil. It must have been crushing for him. He was probably a young married father himself at that time. I found out later that maybe Professor Knox was going through his own struggles in his life. Gil had a brother, George. He was also a professor, and and George was also a tremendous guy. So whatever those Knox parents were doing, they did it right because they had at least two really awesome sons. Professor Knox, from my heart to yours, getting a little emotional here. I just thank you for answering my questions and always being patient and kind to me. And and I'm sorry for what you went through in 1970. I'm sure it must have been excruciating for you. I can just sort of see you in my mind's eye just struggling with this, uh, this senseless, brutal murder of Julie and Terry Dade. Junction City is a special community I just can't imagine what the whole community was going through on that cold January morning. Thank you for that field report, Johnny. Anything more of note about Mr. and Mrs. Dade? Anything which may have increased the likelihood of violence to befall them? You know, there's nothing noted in the police reports about that or the newspaper reports. I suspect that they were Christians. They were married in a Christian church and also laid to rest with a Christian ceremony. I don't know whether they went to church every week or not. It seemed like they were just a very run-of-the-mill young couple with a child that was just starting out their life. Yeah. I mean, I did put in a call to the Lane County Sheriff's Department, their cold case unit, and I haven't heard anything back quite yet. Raj, why don't you tell us a little bit more about the events on that dark January morning? Terry and Julie lived in an apartment at the Maple Apartments, which is 151 Maple Street in Junction City. On the very early morning of January 21st, somewhere between 2 and 3.30 a.m., according to police estimation, there was a knock on the door of their apartment. Julie got up to answer the door, and then all hell broke loose. We're not sure exactly the order of events, but we know Julie was taken from the apartment by the assailant or assailants and placed into a white station wagon. This was witnessed by somebody in or around the area. Then, sometime later, approximately 4.20 a.m., 
Julie escaped from the station wagon on Laurel Street, 1.5 blocks away from the date's apartment. She ran to a nearby house and then the assailant or assailants dragged her back into the station wagon. Once again, this was witnessed. She was screaming and that was heard by witnesses as well. She was dragged back into the station wagon by someone described as a medium-built husky man, which seems weird to me. Medium-built and husky don't go together in my head. But Could that mean short and stocky? That's what comes to my mind. It's like It was also January, so maybe a, a medium-built guy wearing a big jacket so he looked husky? I mean, yeah, hard to yeah say. that could be. Weirdly, after he gets Julie back into the station wagon, he started searching the street with a flashlight. It's unclear whether he found anything. He ends up driving away with Julie still in the station wagon. He comes back, according to witnesses, a very short time later and once again searches the street, apparently finding something on the ground and putting it into his pocket. We don't have any clue as to what that could be. Was it something of Julie's, or was it something that the assailant dropped that could potentially identify him? The sheriff's department was called during this episode and was en route to Laurel Street. But then, within minutes, there was a report of a car on fire several blocks away, and the car actually exploded. So sheriff's department and firefighters went there at 4.50 a.m., Julie Dade's burnt body was found underneath this car. More information about the car. The vehicle is described as a white 1962 Buick station wagon, which was owned by a man named Ferris R. Norman. Mr. Norman was a resident of the trailer park Prairie Road and Bailey Lane is where the trailer park was located. This could be a little bit confusing because there is in fact another Prairie Road running from Eugene to Junction City. This intersection of Prairie Road and Bailey Lane is just a few blocks, well, like several blocks from their apartment at 151 Maple Street. So the vehicle that was set on fire, this 1962 Buick station wagon, that's the same one Julie got taken in, right? It would be so unlikely for there to be two white Buick 1962 station wagons, but that is unknown. It's a question mark hanging in the air. Well, and we don't even know that the vehicle that Julie was taken in, abducted in, we don't know that that was a Buick or a 1962. We just know it was a white, white station, station wagon. wagon. So unless this assailant has a penchant for white station wagons, and why wouldn't they? But it is unknown. What did they find with Julie's body? Okay, so this is actually a little bit hard for me to talk about. I'll just try to get through it by giving the information because this is a 20-year-old woman who has a one-year-old son who had just turned one the previous day and the next day, this is what happens to Julie. Julie's autopsy revealed she had been killed by strangulation and massive blows to the head. Julie was under the vehicle. She was likely dead before the car was set on fire. The gas tank was punctured by a small instrument, like a screwdriver, and then the leaking gasoline was ignited, causing the vehicle to explode. Obviously, Terry is the prime suspect here, right? No. Here's the thing is, we always default to the intimate partner, or the, the husband, but let me get to why there's no chance it was Terry. Mid-morning that same day, Lane County Sheriff's deputies were investigating Julie's shocking death. While canvassing the area, they heard reports of screaming during the night at the Maples apartment complex. Residents also reported that a baby had been crying in Unit 11, which was the unit Julie and Terry lived in. The officers investigated, and that is when they found Terry deceased in his bed. Mark was in his crib in another room, completely unharmed. Thank goodness for that. The thing about Terry's death is he was potentially killed while asleep. Initial reports indicate that he may have been shot in the head because there was a lot of blood and it was later determined by autopsy that he was struck in the head. He basically died from blunt force trauma, but they don't know exactly what was used. Possibly a baseball bat or a pipe or, you know, maybe even something smaller like a hammer yeah. or something like that. There's so many items in our homes. I mean, a screwdriver is a weapon. A pair of scissors is a weapon. And it didn't even have to be something that the 
the murderer or murderers brought with them. It could have been, oh, here's sure. a hammer right here. And, and especially with that initial report of Terry having been shot in the head with, quote, a large caliber revolver, end quote, that makes me suspect that there was perhaps circular damage to his head, which makes me right away picture hammer. That's basically all we have. Again, this is 1970. Junction City was a small town then. It's still a small town. Junction City had a population of approximately 2,400 in 1970. The population is approximately 5,000 now. So it's doubled in size in the past 50 years, but gone from very small to still very sort of small. small. Yeah. <laughs> And I can guarantee that the people in Junction City, they knew each other. And of course, Terry grew up in Junction City. He grew up there, went to high school there, also worked in a mill there. So it makes sense to me that like the whole town knew this couple. I mean, they're this good looking young couple with a baby, a, an infant living on their own. I mean, they're, they just were just starting out their lives. So I can't imagine that people didn't know this couple. Yeah, Terry worked at the American Can Company Plywood Mill in Junction City. I'm not sure if that still exists, but (laughs) at the time, he worked the swing shift 3 p.m. to 11 p.m., and he reportedly got home at about midnight. So at 2 to 3.30 in the morning, it's entirely likely that he was already asleep. And that would sort of make sense You know, Julie likely was a lighter sleeper because she had to take care of the baby, not to be sexist or misogynist, but honestly, that's probably how it was in 1970. Heck, that's how it is still with a lot of people in 2024. If she was still breastfeeding, you know, she would probably be one ear open listening for Mark to start crying. It seems reasonable to me that she's the one that got up and got the door and Terry was already asleep. Even though, I don't know, in the middle of the night, if there's a knock on the door, I don't think I'm sending you to go answer it, Johnny. That was my first thought is, oh my gosh, why is this young mom answering the door? You and I talk about this pretty often. When we were growing up, I can promise that when I was growing up, my my papa or my grams just left their keys in the car, folded up in the visor. You pull the visor down, boom, you got the keys, you're good to go. And how I know that is my granddad used to let me drive his car in the fields. <laughs> yeah, you want to go drive the car? Sure. The keys are in the dad or in the visor. This was a time maybe when people didn't even lock doors. Most people didn't lock doors in non-urban areas right, back then. That's why I'm saying, you know, we're establishing This is a small town. This is rural Oregon. Everybody knows everyone, more or less. You have a good, solid blue collar base, just like the town I I grew up in. A lot of folks worked at the mill. So likely, Julie hears knock, 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 and comes to the door thinking it's someone she knows. You know, and also wanting to get there quickly because maybe the baby just went down, and then also her husband just got home from working, you know, a solid swing shift. You never know. You're never anticipating that this is going to be the last door that you ever open. Right. And even the Lane County sheriffs think that Julie opened the door. And also, secondly, they think Julie was somehow immediately incapacitated, whether that means knocked out or stunned or or what is unclear. But then they think Terry was killed right away while he was still in bed and likely still asleep, which makes sense. You always want to take out the biggest threat first. Yes. And most people are going to assume, even if Julie and Terry were the same size, you know, statistically, the man is going to have more muscle tone and be stronger than a woman of the same physical build. You take out the man first, and if he happens to be asleep at that time, great. You got the drop on him. You can get it done quickly. And then whatever needs to happen with Julie can happen. And Terry had a, a job. I don't know what his job was at the mill. I don't know, you know but that's manual labor. So you're going to be in pretty good shape. Also, he's 19 years old. He looked fit in the pictures that we saw, but he could have been an athlete. You know, it's, it's hard to say. So um, definitely that's what brings us to theories. Ladies first. So thank you very much. I am a lady. 
I think she knew whoever knocked on the door. I just get that feeling. Why would you open your door to a stranger at 2 a.m. when you've got your baby sleeping and your husband? Why would you be like, oh yeah, strange person, I don't know, please come into my apartment. I don't think she would do that. Remember, in 1970, no one had cell phones. Nobody had any other means of communicating other than landline, carrier pigeon, and face-to-face. -face. So Local coffee shop. <laughs> let's say your buddy Fred breaks down on the road and he knows, oh gosh, I'm just a couple blocks away from Terry and Julie's house. I just need to use their phone so I can call my wife so she can come pick me up or can call the service station to come tow the vehicle in the morning. Yeah, I think it makes sense that it was somebody that Julie knew from town. Maybe not a great friend, but you know, oh yeah, that's uh, Jimmy from the coffee shop. Yes. And remember, we don't have any information about whether or not Julie worked outside of the home. Raising a child and taking care of a house is a full-time job and one that people should be really proud of in any case. So we don't know, you know, she's out in the community doing the grocery shopping, walking her baby in a stroller, and all of the things that a person taking care of a home would do. So people know her. Maybe it was somebody that said, oh, hey, it's me, it's Penelope, let me in. And Julie was like, oh, no, a, a friend is, you know, I need your help. That's like a perfect ruse. That's like a Ted Bundy situation. Not that I think Ted Bundy did this, but it's kind of a, oh, I need help. And here's Julie like, oh, sure. She opens the door and immediately she's hit in the head or punched or however she's incapacitated. Somehow waylaid and taken out of action. Yes. We have no information really about her physical attributes other than one of the reports said she was an attractive blonde. And certainly in the picture, you can tell she was very pretty. She kind of had like a Brigitte Bardot beauty about her, I would say. Yeah, I, I, would, I would agree with that. What do we think happens next? So she's like immediately incapacitated. Then what do you think happened? I agree with the police's assessment of the likely timeline. She's incapacitated somehow. Terry is killed then she's taken from the apartment. And then we essentially know how the rest of the timeline goes out. The question is, why is she taken from the apartment? It leads to the question, who's the intended target here? I think it's Julie. I think that she's the intended target. Let's talk about motive for a minute. So what are we thinking here? We're thinking just like random lunatics that were taking a scenic drive down Highway 99 and decided to murder a couple for no good reason. We don't really believe that. It seems the unlikeliest of unlikely scenarios that they happen to pick this door at this time on this night. But you know, that's how randomness works. Is sure. It is odd and unlikely. That is never off the table, but it sure doesn't seem to be the most likely scenario. If it was random lunatic, why would Julie open the door? So I, I'm gonna discount random lunatic theory. I mean, we do have examples of this, like random acts of violence, like In Cold Blood is about the Clutter family. They were all horribly murdered. I mean, I don't know how you could be murdered well by two escaped uh, convicts from Kansas. And so that is a possibility. The Sharon Tate murdered. They didn't know those people either, the Manson family that is. It does happen. Is it likely? It doesn't seem like that. Any other thoughts on the motive or why this crime happened? Today, I was on my treadmill watching some true crime and I was watching a docu-series about the University of Idaho murders, which occurred on November 13th, 2022. There were four University of Idaho students that were brutally murdered, stabbed to death in their own home. You know, when that case was first being discussed, it seems like everybody was looking for a motive. We try to project our senses of logic and what's reasonable and what's appropriate to other people. We don't know if Kaylee was targeted. We don't know if it was Maddie. We don't know if it was Zana or Ethan. We don't know. The father of Kaylee said that her body sustained the most damage. So it would make sense to think, ah, she was the intended person or targeted person of these murders. But the fact is, we don't know what his motive was. We don't know what anyone's motive is. Part of human nature is pattern recognition. 
we try to impose patterns on events that sometimes don't have a rationale or a reason. We're trying to ascribe logic to what, in essence, at its root, is an illogical act. The murder of two folks for good reason, no good reason, it, murder is still an illogical act. Yes, and I think it's where people get lost in the weeds. You think, oh, there has to be a motive, there has to be a reason. There's no good reason for anyone to bludgeon, strangle, and set on fire the body of Julie Dade. There's a reason why the judicial system doesn't require the prosecution to prove motive. Sometimes the motive is just not discernible to rational folks. So you're right, like trying to ascribe a sense of structure within an act that is completely unstructured, so to speak. So then why do you think Julie was the intended victim? I think it's a little obvious that this was just overkill. She was strangled, bludgeoned to death, and then her body was set on fire. This is like somebody is really trying to eliminate her. But strangling is a very personal crime. It's like stabbing. You have to have like intimate contact with the person. So I wonder if this wasn't somebody that had developed feelings for her, a stalker of sorts, a, a former boyfriend, somebody that still carried a torch for her. She's taken from her home unless they were just planning to, and I apologize for saying this, but sexually assault her and then kill her. If Terry's already dead, why would they take her away from the apartment? And she tried to get away and they grabbed her again. This person is going to have a lot of trouble to keep Julie with them. And see, I read this completely differently. Of course. <laughs> Number one, I don't think that the attacker expected Julie to be answering the door. Like I said before, if there's a knock on the door in the middle of the night, I'm not sending my wife to answer it, I'm answering it myself. This is actually true. And especially in 1970, I feel like that would be even more people would expect the man of the house to answer the door instead of the lady of the house at 2.30 in the morning. Here's the scenario I envision. Assailant knocks on the door, Julie answers. Now the assailant has to call an audible because he was expecting it was Terry. He was expecting to be able to just kill Terry right there and leave. Now we got Julie in the mix. So he knocks her out or incapacitates her in whatever fashion. He goes, he kills Terry. And now he's left with a loose end. Julie has seen him. Julie knows who it is. She can report this to the police. Now he's stuck having to deal with her. The most logical thing to do would be to kill her right there, like he did Terry. And I don't know why that didn't happen, but he decided to take her away. And then even after that, she escaped again. Now this guy is just pissed off. Since her level of engagement has increased, I think his level of engagement and honestly, his rage is likely taking over. How dare a woman essentially fight back against him? Okay, I can almost see that. Also too, what's the motive for killing Terry? This guy worked in a mill, he was 19 years old, he grew up in the area. What could have he done that was so egregious that this is the response? I mean, we've kicked around a couple ideas, like maybe they were into drugs. Right? We yeah. don't know. It was 1970. I mean... Yeah, I, I mean, I know truckers used to use uh, speed to get them through a shift. I have no idea whether mill workers used drugs to focus their concentration. But even the same motive for a crime against Julie could be somewhat relatable to a motive as a crime against Terry. Maybe he was having an affair with somebody oh, else. I never thought and, that. And, you know, the husband said, enough of this, I'm going to take care of this, I'm going to nip this in the bud. But wait, so then he, this guy would have to be a real scumbag, like a big, a big, huge scumbag, right? Oh, you had relationships with my wife, I'm trying to be classy here, I'm going to have a relationship with your wife, or I'm going to be intimate with your wife. 
I guess, but I, I don't even I don't even think the guy was thinking that. I think the guy was thinking, "You had a relationship with my wife. I'm going to kill you." And then、I、Julie、guess. got in the way. I think Julie was not part of the murderer's equation until she essentially inserted herself into that equation. We don't have any evidence that either one of them were being unfaithful to one another. We don't know. That's true. We, we don't. don't we don't know if they were the nicest people in the world that went to you know their church every Sunday, and we know they were young. We know that they were、um, parents to a one-year-old son. That's all we really know. Oh, by the way, if you're like me, you're just thinking about that kid the whole time. Like, what happened to the baby? Kind of like in the Untouchables when the baby goes down the carriage and the steps. Anyway, I never saw that. Oh my! It's like one of the best movies of all time. Get real. You should watch it. So when the police finally came to Julian Terry's apartment, the baby was found in his crib, unharmed, in a separate room. The officers then either took the baby to or called a wife of one of the the deputies who lived in Junction City. So she took care of Mark that day until Mark was then placed in his grandparents' custody. We don't know what became of Mark since that time. Understandably, he would want to have a lot of privacy. Hopefully, he is doing well, regardless of the circumstances of his、yeah. very early life. We wish him all the best, and the families of Julie and Terry, and the friends for that matter too. We know what happened, but who would do something like this? So, if you're, we're going off of your, it was an act of passion or a crime of passion, that tracks. But Julie was the one that received the most. Terry is not like he was having a good time of it at all. He was bludgeoned to death as well, but that was it. Julie has three different ways that she is severely harmed. Yeah, but Terry didn't fight back. Julie did. So now we're talking about engaging a higher level of force along that continuum of force. She's fighting back, so the assailant, the murderer, has to increase his level of response to that. But how come? He, so, what if she was just trying to get away from him? She probably was just trying to get away from him. That doesn't mean the murderer was seeing it that way. I mean, in my mind's eye, it's like she's fighting back, like she's punching him in the face, she's kicking、no, him in the no, nuts. No, I. When I say fighting back, I mean. Scratching, clawing,、oh, pushing him away to、complying. be able to get away. She's from not、him. complying. Okay,、Correct. I got that. That makes sense、uh, psychologically. She's not complying. I know. I know people that are real wiry, like skinny,、mm-hmm. and they can fight all day long. And and I mean, and they will because they're they've got that like kind of wiry, skinny energy. And Terry sort of looks like he had that build, at、sure. least based on the. The headshots that we've seen, which、yeah. is the only pictures of him, we've just seen, yeah, shoulders up. But、uh, honestly, both of them look like they should be going to a sock hop. Yeah, they really do. <laughs> they look like an all-American, clean-cut sweetheart couple. I mean, yeah, she's extras on Happy Days. Absolutely, extras on Happy Days. Kids、sure. that are too young to know that show, <laughs> look it up on YouTube. It's well. Just look、it. up Fonzie. That's all you need to know. Is Fonzie was the best, <laughs> and Leather Tuscadero. Okay. Yeah. So we still don't have a motive. I mean, we kind of like maybe they were into drugs, but really. So you talked about speed or amphetamines.、Yeah. When I was growing up, and thankfully I did not grow up around drugs, but I had heard to it referred to as crank、yes. because when it was being、um, transported across straight, state lines, rather, sometimes、um, motorcycle people, motorcycle people, bikers, they would hide it in their crankshaft. Uh, case or something like that. I I thought it was just called crank because it sort of amped you cranked up. You it up. cranked you up. It turned your engine over faster. Yeah. But but who knows? It wasn't as popular though. Like when we think about drugs of the seventies, marijuana right away. But that used to be a big business. K- kids of today that don't understand <laughs> that marijuana is legal and everything else now. It did not used to be like that. It used to be if you're、Serious. caught with marijuana, you go to jail.、Yeah. And there are still people today in jail for life for dealing or carrying too much marijuana. Absolutely. And one of our friends and a contributor that shall remain unnamed said that it was gangster. Like that was how it was. And we know that from growing up. I mean, it was a big deal. Yeah. And so 
there's the cautionary tales that I was told growing up. Don't just go for a walk on someone's property you don't know. You stumble upon somebody's grow operation, you're likely to get shot. And we know that those things did happen. I mean, they, they just did. So people now listening are like, just for a little weed, who cares? You can just go right down to the old weed shop and no, it wasn't like that in 1970. Let's just say the Dades were like small time drug dealers. This is something that you and I have talked about a little bit because, you know, being in this area for most of my life, we know that in the 70s, there were definitely people that were dealing pot or marijuana, whatever you call it. Grass, man. Yeah, man. Anyway, in the 70s, I had heard like sort of urban legends about like, yeah, well, you know, they were a small time pot dealer, but then a big time dealer, the real gangsters of grass, if that's a term, would tell these small time dealers, hey, you better stop or we're going to set your house on fire or we're going to make you pay. Is that something you think Julian Terry could have been into? You know, it's entirely possible. Back in the day, that was a big deal to be a marijuana dealer. And if, let's say, you're just starting to get into the game, the established players, they don't want competition. Businesses now don't want competition and they're gonna try and drive you out. Okay. It's not any different in the illegal business world. Competition is still bad for the bottom line. It would definitely undermine somebody's bottom line. So that could potentially be a thing. Do I think that they were dealing weed? I have no idea. Is it possible? Sure. Again, they look like the most clean cut couple on the planet, but it's hard to say what people are really into, especially in 1970. Agreed. And I'll say too, this is shocking. Like this is still a shocking crime in 2024. I know serial killers existed in the 70s. Probably even more so in the 70s. Oh, they were having a heyday. I mean, because there wasn't quite the... You know, we didn't have DNA evidence testing and so forth. And now forensics was in its infancy. Infancy. And now that we have like the genealogy stuff and genetic testing to solve crimes, which is amazing. Again, so what this couple smoked a little bit of weed? Like what they owed somebody a hundred bucks? Like I'm trying to wrap my mind around what could these people have done that would elicit this kind of a response unless it were just the person or persons were just completely unhinged. Now the, there's a state hospital location in Junction City that wasn't there in 1970. Not a lot was in Junction City in 1970, specifically that side of the Oregon State Hospital, which is on Mill Iron Road and uh, Prairie, I guess, uh, different Prairie Road, not there then. So no, and, no escape mental patients. And also remember in 1970, I-5, the main north-south thoroughfare in Oregon, had just been completed four years previously. Prior to that, Highway 99, which is the the route that Junction City lives on, was the main highway going from Southern California all the way up to Northern Washington. Even though I-5 was already created, it's entirely likely that there were plenty of people that still used 99 as their thoroughfare of choice. Even though it was a small town, it did get a lot of traffic. Yes, and it still a, does. And a lot of out-of-town traffic. Absolutely. I, I drive 99 a lot, so I'm on that stretch quite a bit. Hallucinogenics were pretty popular, especially in 1970. Who's to say that a couple people didn't get hopped up on acid? And I mean, you know, I know that sounds ridiculous and it does make me think of the Jeffrey McDonald murders. Acid is groovy, kill the pigs. If you're not familiar, it's particularly horrifying. Which circles us back to random lunatic. You know, is is it possible? Could it It be Zodiac? No, oh my God, what? Oh, so you can't see this, but he's laughing and looks all proud of himself. Like he's so smart. It wasn't Zodiac. What, who else did Zodiac kill the Kennedys? I mean, what else did Zodiac do? Zodiac might not even be a real killer. I heard Zodiac caused the flood. Come on. Oh, I heard Zodiac shot first. Zodiac does have, if Zodiac's a real person, Zodiac does have a history of killing both people in a couple, like for instance, the Lake Berryessa murders. Right, yes. However, the MO is very different. It's super that, different. That was gunshot. I don't think it was Zodiac. 
any like basically any crime that people can't pin it on somebody it's like it's probably Ted Bundy probably Zodiac no it wasn't now Oregon does have quite a nefarious history with serial killers basically using Oregon as their playground the Northwest in general I'm trying to think of serial killers active and that was their MO because Bundy just went after women who else did we have I'm going back to Zodiac uh, Are he, you kidding right now? <laughs> he killed people by multiple different means. He oh, shot some God. people. He stabbed some people. You know, it's not out of the realm of possibility that he also would have bludgeoned some other people. But that oh. being said, it sounds great on paper. I don't think it was Zodiac. And he did he kill people in their homes because they were generally out in cars. They were they were visible. So to my mind, Zodiac's mo was not going to somebody's apartment at two in the morning. I, I'd have to pull out the research again. I don't think he went into people's houses. I think he was more crime of opportunity out in the street. We need to shift our focus back to Julian Terry Dade. These two people, 19 and 20 years old respectively, were murdered. One in their own bed as they slept, and the other was brutalized. And the literal definition of overkill. Absolutely. Like they thought she was Rasputin. They had to strangle her yes. and then beat her and then set her on fire yeah. just in case. Absolutely. Yeah, Rasputin, they got a hard time killing him. So I don't know. When your adrenaline kicks in, though, sometimes you can have, like, we've heard stories of mothers, like, picking up a car off of yeah. their child. So I wonder if Julie's, you know, tiger mode, as it were, like, you know, that mama bear just kicked in and she just started I mean I hope she got in a couple of and, and that's why I'm thinking that the, the murderer had to increase his level of I force. understand this now right just thinking about you are, would be desperate like yeah. as a woman I there've been in a couple of times in my life where I felt like I needed to protect someone and I had no fear and I just knew if this person continues to come towards us and is posing a threat, I will take their head off. Like, I just had no fear. Like, I will dismantle this person. And it's just this, like, I guess, evolutionary drive to keep us safe, to keep our loved ones, loved ones yeah. people we care for. So, but I don't know. It just seems I keep going back to Julie was the target. But remember, Julie also doesn't know if she doesn't get away, is Mark next? Oh, her baby. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. So that's yet another reason right. why she may have gone into, as you say, mama bear mode. Oh, wait a second. So maybe Mark was asleep and whoever killed Terry and Julie too, presumably, didn't even know there was a baby. Possibly. So that could be the stranger theory because what friends of theirs wouldn't know that they have this one-year-old child. Yeah. Or even just their neighbors or people in the community would But know. that's that's what Julie put possibly was yeah. trying to get back oh, to gosh. is, I need to get away from this, my, yeah, take this my guy baby. so I can yes. protect my baby. I mean, this makes it even more... Uh, I feel like she knew Terry she, was already dead. So she knew... Because really? if she's still in the apartment um, when Terry is getting killed... Or wait, so maybe she's knocked out, comes to when this person is killing Terry. Yeah. Jumps on their back or does something to try to stop that from happening. Right. And then that's when she's removed from the apartment, potentially. Agreed. That That's okay, sort of that, how I envision it. I think she knew worse. Terry was already dead. She knew she was Mark's only hope. God, this is so bleak. This makes me so... The amount of empathy I have for Julie and Dade is off the charts, more than any other cases we've followed so far or discussed. She was probably desperate, desperate to get back to her son. Yeah. And maybe she knew Terry was dead, maybe she didn't. That that drive to protect for women, I would want to protect you. If somebody were attacking you, I would try. And I'd be telling you to get away, get out, <laughs> save yourself, live to no. fight another day. No, I know, but what person? Call Naveen Andrews, he might be available. Oh. <laughs> Think about a situation in your own life where you would absolutely go ballistic on someone to save, you know, or would would you want your partner, spouse, loved one to live to fight another day? 
that's easier said than done. In the moment, we react so quickly and it would be impossible for me to be like, okay, you're on your own notch. Sorry, nice knowing you, thumbs the brakes. I mean, we're married. I'm not gonna be like, well, good. <laughs> it, was, it was a good long run. Yeah. You I, should go live your life. Yeah, guy. That's no, fine. that's not gonna happen. That would be ridiculous. But we don't know what kind of situations come about. So we don't really know what was going on for Julie. I think since you said that that drive, that instinct to protect her baby, she would do anything she could to get back to that baby. I mean, I would imagine maybe that's why she jumped out of the car. And also, and I don't want to sound judgy here, why the heck didn't anyone help this woman? Why didn't somebody, I mean, this is Junction City, Oregon. I feel like a couple of shotguns are, are in some houses, a couple rifles, a couple handguns. Why weren't they, why didn't anyone intervene? So with regard to that, someone actually did at least question what was going on. Oh, I didn't know this. When Julie escaped from the vehicle in that Laurel Street area, she went to the house of a Mr. and Mrs. Don Botker. Another neighbor, Jake Wacker, saw Julie going to that door, reported that she was screaming, and that the guy was dragging her away from the house. Jake says he got her out into the street and she stopped screaming and he put her in the car. Mr. Botker opened the front door and asked the man if there was any trouble. And the husky man, the murderer, reportedly replied to him that the girl was drunk. Oh, shoot. So here's the thing, too. I understand if I hear screaming outside, I might not just go out there. Hey, what's going on here? That's an unsafe maneuver. But I'm surprised that all the neighbors weren't out asking questions and that at least one person didn't brandish a firearm of some kind. Here we have like, oh, my wife, you know, you know, women hysterical. I mean, that makes me feel just so sick to think that she tried and could have if one person would have just intervened, one JC redneck would have said, not today, sir. She can sleep it off somewhere else. You go home or what have you. Maybe she would still be alive. Yes. I think that's why this reminds me of the song, Halter Skelter. We go through it. What could it be? We go down to the bottom. We go back to the top of the slide. We go down again. And it's just that feeling of just really feeling helpless. And if I feel this way, how much more do the family of the families rather of Julie and Terry feel? Completely helpless. And here's the problem with this case. It's 54 years since this occurred. Yes. My suspicion is most all these folks involved, witnesses, whether eyewitnesses, ear witnesses, what have you, and probably any suspects have long since passed. Yes. This is true. So I don't think there's going to be any coming forward as a matter of conscience 54 years later saying, I know what happened. I need to unburden myself. I think it's possible. This is the thing is that's really difficult. There's no physical evidence really other than the car, I guess. But who knows what happened in the car? Well, we don't know if there was physical evidence. It, we don't know what Terry was bludgeoned with. Mm -hmm. And we also don't know if it was left at the scene. The puncturing of the gas tank. We Could don't know. Any... We don't know what that was punctured with, and we don't know if that was left at that scene. Mm -hmm. If either of those items were left behind in 1970, all they had potential for was fingerprints and blood typing, ABO yes, blood typing. That's true. However, in 2024, if they appropriately handled the evidence over the past 54 years they do have the possibility of getting DNA off of those items, yes. like touch DNA or whatever the right. case may be. For sure. I still am holding out hope. You know, I'm like a soft-hearted person. I'm hoping that there's one person that knows what happened to Julie and Terry Dave. One person is all it takes to say, it's been over 50 years. Nobody that could have harmed me then is alive or they're too old, you know, to do anything now. Too old to retaliate. Yeah, like, or they've moved away from the area. That is also a possibility. I'm gonna come clean and I implore you, please, if you are that person or you know somebody who knew what happened to Julie and Terry Dade, their son had just turned a year old the day before on January the 20th. The next day, they're both brutally murdered. Nobody's family should ever have to go through that. 
give Mark Dade some peace to know what actually happened to his parents. Even if it's third-hand information, even if you heard a friend of a friend or your, your Uncle Bobby said, oh, he knew someone, you got to tell the the Lane County Sheriff's Office about it because as far as I know, this is still an active investigation and this piece of information that you hold might be the piece of information that fills that open spot in the puzzle. If you've been carrying this secret for over 50 years, it's doing damage to you too. Unburden yourself let this secret finally come out, then maybe you can get a little peace in your life too. Especially if you had nothing directly to do to the crime, but you know some information, you could be a hero to someone. You, you would be my hero actually, if you just came forward and you can do these things anonymously as well. If you wanna email us or contact us, we're on Facebook, Instagram, and we have all of the information in the show notes. You can email us at OregonPodcast at gmail.com, and that's O-R-E-G-O-N-E, podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Or you can also call the Lane County Sheriff's Office cold case team at 541-682-4513. They also have a confidential email address at LCS. O-C-O-N-F at lanecountyor.gov. That will also be in the show notes. It could just take one call, one email with just a little bit of information. You know, hun, people don't really move away from their hometowns too often. So Not in Oregon, at least. No, not in Oregon. Well, why would we? It's already so amazing. But... But a lot of people, people I grew up with, are still living there. They're very happy. And why would they want to move? There are still people that maybe worked with him at the mill, maybe young mothers that also knew Julie. If you have any information, just come forward. Please give these two young parents their final rest and and maybe a little rest too for, for Mark Dade, their son. Some housekeeping notes. Podcast written by Johnny, edited mixed and mastered if you can call it that by me music by sound bay original piece is called danger everywhere used under creative commons license remixed and edited by me podcast thumbnail adapted from an original photograph by a camphor taken from wikimedia commons also used under a creative commons license